Welcome to another inspirational message from London Life Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. I am fascinated by the phenomenon of fandom rivalries. Do you know what those are? You know, when the fandom, the, the collective of all the fans of an artist, most likely in the music industry, when they decide that they hate or have an issue with the fans of another artist. And then they have feuds between themselves. And then they, they, they compete against each other. And, and, and meanwhile, half of the time, the artists themselves have no issue with each other. Sometimes they do. In, in, in certain genres, they, they call it having beef. But, but sometimes they don't have any feud at all. It's just the fans, the fandom, the, the global collective of fans that have issues with each other. And I can think of a few such rivalries that I followed, perhaps was a part of, at some point in my life, in my youth. So for example, I can think of a big one, a very big one, Tupac versus Biggie. Oh, my days. Mm. And, then, and then some years later... It was, it was 50 Cent and Ja Rule. Oof, that was a dangerous one. And perhaps in a different genre, even more dangerous, between the fans of Mavado and Vibes Cartel. Come on, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Or maybe today is, it's uh, maybe the fans of Nicki Minaj and Cardi B. Am I allowed to say these, these, these names? from this place, or maybe Beyonce and Rihanna. Or if, you, if, if none of these names mean anything to you, if you are of a slightly more mature stock, perhaps maybe the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Um, if you are maybe my parents' generation or <clears throat> Miroslav's generation. And if you are from, from my part of the world, maybe it's, um, maybe it's Georgi Marjanovic versus Miki Yevremovic. Um, I don't know if those names mean anything to you, but, but arguably the most notorious fandom rivalry and the most widespread globally is the one between the fans of Michael Jackson and Prince. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Now, now you see, I, I might be young, but it didn't, uh, it didn't evade me. I, I, I still felt this. And I have to, for full disclosure, and I can say this because I'm leaving, so, so I don't really, I'm not really concerned of what happens after I say this, but if I, I mean, I have great respect, great respect for both of these artists, great respect. But if I had to, if I was pressed and I had to choose to listen to one for the rest of my life, it'd be Prince. There you go, I said it. However... However, I have to say that it was a particular song by Michael Jackson that got stuck in my head and it kept coming back to me as I was reading the scripture that Karen so beautifully read for us and preparing for today. The title of this message is The Man in the Mirror. You see, fandom rivalries are not just restricted to the music industry. They exist even in the history of the Christianity, the Christian church. 
And some of these rivalries started very early on. If you, if you read carefully through the, epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians, you find out that there were people in that church who took pride in the fact that they were followers of Paul. And they saw themselves as, as in some way opposed or different. Maybe they thought, I'm sure they thought better, maybe, to those who considered themselves followers of Apollos or the followers of Peter. And, 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 and they saw themselves as separate in some way. And later on, in the history of the church, there arose other similar feuds between those who considered themselves to be fans of the law and those who considered themselves to be fans of the gospel. In fact, the latter group, the fans of the gospel, they didn't, very much, they didn't like very much the letter of James because they considered the author of this letter to be a member of the former. They thought that he was a fan of the law. And, and, and even, even Martin Luther, the, the, the famous German priest turned reformer, you know, he, he made some remarks about, about this book. He called it in a, in a, in a very um, uh, in a, in a, in a characteristically German fashion, the epistle of straw, he called it. And, and he even argued that perhaps its, its place in the New Testament needs to be reconsidered in, in some sense. And, and, but I believe that the law and the gospel rivalry, the rivalry between the, those who consider themselves to be fans of one or the other, I believe it's silly, honestly. I believe it, it's silly because it's based like other fandom rivalries. Let's, 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 be, let's be honest. Because it's based on, it's based on a fake distinction. It's based on, a, on something called a false dichotomy. And I believe that a closer read of our scripture reading from the epistle of James demonstrates as much. Namely, in, in all of his talk about works and the law and being doers of the word, a word all James is really trying to do, and the whole point that he's trying to make, is that we should be more like Christ. That's it. It's very simple. And Christ is literally the content of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is Lord and therefore Caesar is not. The fact that his kingdom has come and therefore all the other kingdoms are rendered powerless and obsolete and have been defeated. And James, James makes this point. He, he, he goes, even though it's a very simple point on the surface, he, he does go through, through some effort to make this point, and he does it beautifully. It's very dense, it's rich, it's beautiful. Uh, James makes this point by starting at the very beginning, by alluding to the beginning, by alluding to creation. And he tells us that every act of giving, all of generosity, all kindness, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. The lights that he is referring to are the heavenly lights, the sun and the moon that were placed there by God himself to move over the dome that was over the earth. And, and, and from his perspective, from the cosmological perspective of the ancients, it was the lights that were moving on the dome rather than perhaps the other way around. But they were established there and, and, and when they would move, their movements cast, casted shadows on the earth. It caused change on the earth. Not so with the Father though, for in Him we are told that there is no variation due to change. Other translations would put it, there is no shadow 
of turning. And I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase from the, the, the famous verse in the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. He says, the, 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 the hymn says, there is no shadow of turning with thee. But then we, re we read that this God, who is not changing, in whom there is no shadow of turning, that his constant, unchanging purpose is to give us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of firstfruits of his creation. You see, the word of truth in other places in the Bible is this phrase is used to refer to the gospel, the good news, the whole content of which, again, is Jesus Christ. In fact, it is Christ himself who is himself referred to as the Word, the Word of God, the same Word through which creation started and was executed. And it is this birth by the Word of truth or by the gospel of Christ, it is the birth that the author of James and his audience and us today all share. It is a common thing we share. It is something that Jesus referred to as the second birth or the birth from above. It is the birth through the Spirit, ritualized by the sacrament of baptism, where we, we symbolically die to ourselves and are born again into a new life. And as James would put it, into a life as first fruits of God's creation. Which then brings us back to Christ again. Because it was Christ that was called the firstborn of creation. So, in, in other words, when we are given birth by the word as first fruits of creation, we are being born again. And in, in, it is another way of saying that we are born into the life of Christ. Christ, who is also called the image of God, the invisible God, the very image according to um, which we were all made, all made at creation, fashioned according to this same image. So I hope that it's, it's beginning to, to make sense how James is arranging all of this, but at the heart of everything he's saying is one simple point, that it is all about Christ and about living, being like Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He calls the readers to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And this language should remind us, if we, are paying if we were paying attention, to an episode when God was giving the law to Moses and declared that he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This God is the God in whose image we have been created. This God is the God that was revealed in Christ as his perfect image. This God who is slow to anger is what we should strive to be like. And one way we ritually um, identify, perform this identification with Christ as the image of God is through the second birth in the waters of baptism. But James doesn't stop there. Instead, he talks about the word that has power to save our souls being implanted in us. And then he is bringing up this imagery of yet another ritual practice of identification with Christ. That of implanting, internalizing, taking in, literally ingesting the body and the blood of Christ. Thus becoming part of his body and sharing in his lifeblood. 
But James doesn't stop there either. He keeps going. Instead, he invites his audience to think about the implications, the consequences of agreeing with everything he laid out for his audience so far. So he invites his audience to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And then he gives this wonderful comparison. The one that sparked the association with Michael Jackson. He compared those who would just hear the word and don't do anything about it. He said that they are like those who see themselves in the mirror and when they go away, immediately forget what they were like. And in the Greek, it's, 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 it's very beautifully put. We are told, I know, I know that um, Dr. Dr. Remy is following there in the Greek. It, we are told that they look at the face of their birth. They look at their true self, at their true essence, at their true identity. And the mirror offers them an opportunity for self-reflection, literally. And perhaps as well for self-examination. But then they walk away and they forget what they saw. And the same is true for those that simply hear the word and don't do it. They have an encounter with the living word, with the living word of God, with Christ Jesus. And in him, they see their reflection. They see their true identity, the face of their birth, the image according to which they were fashioned. And this provides them with an opportunity for self-reflection, perhaps some self-examination. But unless this word becomes implanted, ingested, internalized, they walk away. In, in, instead, in, in, unless this word produces some action, they walk away from it and they forget what they saw. And just in case there was still any leftover confusion among the zealous fans about which camp James supports, camp law or camp gospel, he talks about the other group, those who not only hear but also do the gospel. And referring back to the mirror imagery, he says that they look at the perfect law because the whole, you see, the whole dichotomy is false. They are doers of the gospel, but when they look at the mirror, they look at the perfect law because Christ is the source of the gospel and he is also the one who fulfilled the whole law in whom the law saw its final fulfillment. The life of Christ is what the law lived out looks like. In Christ, we finally see what it means to love, love God and love neighbor. And furthermore, James calls this perfect law the law of liberty. And that's precisely what we saw in Christ, that this is a law that liberates. Because when Christ came to be the fulfillment of the law, he came to bring good news to the poor, to bring release to the captives, sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. This is what the law put in practice does. And finally, James concludes by, by summarizing and spelling out very simply the point that he is making for those who maybe still weren't paying enough attention and still perhaps don't get it. He says, true religion, pure religion is this, to care for the orphans and for the widows and to those in distress and to remain undefiled by the world, the world. And the language of 
orphans and widows. Again, to anyone who was paying any attention or has ever read a bit of scripture in his audience and among us today, it should really be a reminder of the central issue, the central matter in the law and in the prophets as well. Most of the law, you see, is about how we treat fellow humans, especially those who are in distress and those who are in need, those who no one else cares for. And on the other hand, most of the prophets, if you follow carefully, is about God calling people back to this law and telling them that they should really show some justice and mercy and care for the orphan and the widow and the stranger and those who are on the margins and those who are forgotten by others and those who are oppressed. And, and at the very end, to, to, if, if, if there was anyone who still didn't get the point, James then, then writes that the whole point is for us to remain unstained by the world. And this should not be understood as a call for some sort of isolation. Or, or segregation, because that would just completely destroy and go against everything that was said so far. Instead, this should really remind us of Jesus' ministry, who is at the heart of the whole argument James is making, and about his proclamation that his kingdom is not of this world. And as we live in the world and engage with the world and with the orphans and widows and strangers and those in need and those around us, we should really always be reminded that this world is not and should not ever be allowed to stay in us. It should be the other way around. We are the ones proclaiming and, and spreading God's kingdom. And perhaps in that way, perhaps, maybe, just maybe, we might wash and clean some of the dirt and some of the filth of this world. Dear friends, there are, there are too many, far too many, fandom rivalries in Christianity today. Far too many, and some of them are far more dangerous than even the most dangerous rivalries you've seen in dancehall or other genres, especially among Christians. Some of them are old ones, like the one we've mentioned, the law versus the gospel, and then, then I can think of some others, the fans of faith versus the, the fans of, of works. They are very related to the previous one. And then there are some newer ones, perhaps, I can think of the top of my head of one that I've come across. Fans of spirituality, for example, versus the fans of religion, right? And, but, the, but fandom rivalries are silly. Fandom rivalries are silly because the gospel is the fulfillment of the law. Because works are manifestations of faith. And because religion is what spirituality looks like. In practice, in public. Earlier this year, <clears throat> earlier this year, I was blessed by a tweet. It might be surprising to you, but yeah, God does work through Twitter as well. I read a tweet by a priest whom I follow on Twitter, and he, he wrote this, I believe, half, half in jest. But the point he made was deep and profound. He wrote the following, you can't spell spiritual without ritual. I'll say it again for those who are trying to visualize the words in, in your minds. You cannot spell spiritual without ritual. As humans, we, we are creatures of ritual. We are creatures of, of rites, of, of symbols, of symbolic enactment, of, of prophetic performances, artistic 
performances. We experience the world through our senses and we need to have all our senses engaged in order to make sense and to be fully involved with the world. And yet, we are also creatures of habit. And we quickly become accustomed to things. We are, we are very quick, we, we are easy, we get easily habituated to things. And it's easy for us to get into a routine of performing certain actions, certain rituals, without much thought about what exactly we are doing. Some of these, these things are part even of our culture. You know, if someone breaks a glass, we go, hey, why, why do we do this? You know, if someone sneezes, we go, what? Bless you. If someone says something about, pr predict something that is supposed to happen in the future, we say, touch wood, knock on wood. We, ne we never stop to, I mean, ugh, I don't know many people who stop to think why we're doing these things. It's just something we do. It's just something we're used to. It's just a habit. We rarely stop and think. And the same is true for our religion. We come to church every week, sometimes more than once a week. We sing songs. We say amen when it's appropriate. We stand when it's appropriate. We sit when it's appropriate. We say grace before meals. Maybe we pray before bed. I mean, we do other things. Maybe we get baptized. We come out of that water and we, we then join the church and we, we eat the bread. We drink the wine. But unless we stop and ask ourselves, why we're doing all of this? What's the purpose of all these individual and communal rituals? We are like people that look at themselves in the mirror and then walk away and forget what they saw. And I know that you know the feeling. I know that you know the feeling when you, when you, when you walk into a room and you don't know why you're there. Or, or when you're driving your car and you take a turn and then you ask yourself, wait, why, why am I going this way? I'm not even going in the right direction. Or, or when you find yourselves walking to work and you take in a certain route and you're not even, you're not even on the road for that day. Or when you, oh, this, is, this is a big one, when you pick up your phone to look at the time and then you look at your phone and you even perhaps engage with the phone and then put it back in your pocket and you still don't know what time it is. So you do it again and you do it again. And this keeps happening to us because because not only are we easily habituated to things and accustomed to things, but we are also easily distracted. Because our, our attention in this capitalist world, in this consumerist civilization, our attention has become a commodity. And there are too many parties um, fighting for our attention, competing for our attention. So we go through, through life, we go through the motions, we do things with split attention. And in that process, we lose, we forget the face of our birth. We forget our identity. We forget our purpose along the way. We lose our focus. We lose our spirit. We lose our religion. Dear friends, in the past nine months, they've been quite, quite a journey for me. And... In those nine months, I, I did the math. In those nine months, I preached 15 times from this place. I counted. And you've been a wonderful audience. You have been amazing hearers of the word. Sometimes I was talking to you through a filter, a camera, 
a computer screen. Nevertheless, you have been great hearers of the word. But if there's anything I would like to leave you with, is, that, is this invitation to continue being also doers of the word. And, and not just doers for, do, for doing sake. Not acting out our Christianity on autopilot, distracted, caught up in the habits, mindlessly partaking in rituals and going through the motions and the life of the church. But we should instead let the word implant himself in us, grow roots in us, transform and transfigure us, incorporate us and permeate us. My invitation and my prayer for all of us is that we stop and take a good look in the mirror. That we take a look at the man in the mirror, the woman in the mirror, the child in the mirror, the person in the mirror, and that we examine ourselves, and that we may begin to see in the mirror the image of the living God. That we may begin to see in the mirror the face of our birth, the first fruits of God's creation, to see our true identity and our true purpose. And to then look back at the world around us and look at the faces of people around us and, and begin to recognize the same image, the same face of our shared same birth in the faces of all the people around us. And then to live out our faith and our identity in the way that we saw revealed in Christ. And like one body, like one being, like one church, united in our shared identity. And that we may live out this identity in Christ according to the perfect law of liberty. That we may turn our attention to the orphans and the widows and the strangers and those in distress and in need all around us. And that everyone, and to everyone who has been marginalized and oppressed and excluded and forgotten and from within, with our whole being, with all of our senses, that the kingdom of God is among us but is not of this world. Because it is not like this world because in his kingdom the marginalized are at the center the oppressed are set free the excluded are included the forgotten are remembered the first are last and the last are first my dear friends today we partake in a ritual one established by christ himself we call it the lord's supper holy communion the eucharist body and the blood, the bread and the wine. And as we proceed, let us be present and engaged and deeply involved in what we are doing. Let us understand the meaning of it. Let us feel the importance of it. As we take the bread, the body of Christ, and eat it, let us invite Christ into our whole being. Let the living word of God be implanted in us. And as Christ's body enters our body, let us be aware that we are all part of one body, of his body. And let us see and perceive each other as members of that same living being. And as we take the wine, the blood of Christ, and as we drink it, let us feel the life of Christ flowing through us. And let us be transformed 
and transfigured by his life. And let our lives become more like his. And let us be aware that we share the same life with other people. And that the blood shed for us is the same blood that was shed for everyone else. And that everyone's life is equally, everyone's life is equally sacred and precious. Dear friends, you've heard enough. Amen. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com.